0: This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here, host of Now with Dave Brown on AMI-audio. We want to keep you in the now with information on news, sports, politics, technology, all curated and presented by members of the blind and partially sighted community. And that community includes me. But we don't want to do all the talking. We want to hear from you. Do you have an opinion on something you saw in the news? Is something affecting your community? Now is your chance to be heard Listen to Now with Dave Brown wherever you subscribe to podcasts. I'm Juhitha Gupta, and this is The Pulse. Prisoners' Justice Day began with a hunger strike and day of mourning by inmates at Millhaven Institution in 1975. Since then, Prisoners' Justice Day has helped draw attention to inmate rights and penal justice a majority of American prisoners, and likely Canadian prisoners as well, have one or more disabilities. So how jails and prisons deal with the needs of inmates with disabilities is central to institutional safety, humaneness, and re-entry success or failure. By scrutinizing the systemic issues confronting prisoners with disabilities, it's possible to make meaningful reform. It's the only way to ensure that no one, regardless of physical or mental ability, is deprived unduly of their civil and human rights. Today, we discuss incarceration and disability. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello, and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Javitha Gupta, and I'm the host of the program. Whatever you're doing and wherever you are, I hope you're keeping well during the pandemic. And as I like to do off the top of every program, I'll just remind you that you can visit AMI.ca forward slash COVID-19 to keep up with our latest coverage around the pandemic. We've got a lot to get to in today's program. So without further ado, let me bring in my guest. My guest today is Professor Margot Schlinger from the University of Michigan. Margot Schlinger served under the Obama administration as the head of civil rights and civil liberties at the Department of Homeland Security. Margot Schlinger joins us now from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Margot Schlinger, welcome to The Pulse. It's really great to have you. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. It's a, As I said, it's a big topic, um, and we are talking about the American context. So just to Bring us all up to speed. In a nutshell, what are some of the laws, rules, and regulations that govern the rights of people with disabilities in prison? Well,
1: the United States has two major disability rights laws. Those are the Americans with Disabilities Act, which was passed in 1990, and the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, uh, which has a, a disability rights um, provision in it that governs all entities that receive any federal financial assistance which in our system means basically every state prison system so those Mm -hmm. are the two disability rights laws that matter there's a lot of other laws that come in here and there but those are the two central ones and of course there's also our constitution the eighth amendment forbids cruel and unusual punishment and that includes um protections for uh prisoners with disabilities
0: Let's talk a little bit about the numbers. Give us a scope of how many people with disabilities or how many prisoners with disabilities are incarcerated. What's the What do the numbers tell us?
1: Well, as a rough cut American, and this is all pre-pandemic, um, mm-hmm. uh, our jail numbers in particular are down substantially during the pandemic because the criminal courts are not um, running through trials that send people to jail. And and there aren't very good numbers on that. So I'm going to give you pre-pandemic numbers. Pre-pandemic, mm-hmm. our numbers were about 2.2 million people on any given day in American jails and prisons. That's two-thirds in prisons, one-third in jails, which are mm-hmm. the the difference is that jails are um, county and city-run facilities that are uh, pre-trial and for more short-term sentences. So mm-hmm. um, in jails and prisons, Um, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of half of people have um, either mental illness or some kind of physical disability or both. The rate is somewhat higher in jails.
0: Hmm. I'm going to go out on a bit of a limb here, but my perception is that with the move towards deinstitutional, you know, the fact that we had all these group homes and developmental homes that were closed, we've had this move movement away from institutionalizing people with disabilities uh, but we haven't really put in place a lot of community supports has that contributed to the swelling of people with disabilities in prisons and jails?
1: Well I mean maybe maybe not I'm um, it's a complicated question. So um, there hasn't been a significant decrease in group homes, just, just to quarrel with the premise a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. There has been a decrease in big, large institutions, but group homes are a fairly modern phenomenon, and that hasn't gone mm-hmm. down. But if you think about the behemoth institutions you know that house 1,000 people, 1,500 people, there's no question there's been a big decrease in those. Um, mm-hmm. Lots of those um, institutions held people with intellectual disabilities we haven't seen an enormous increase in intellectual disabilities in jails and prisons but lots of those institutions held people with mental illness there has been an increase in the prevalence of mental illness in jails and prisons some people talk about that as a, a phenomenon of trans-institutionalization i think the evidence of that is um, sketchy uh... Mm-hmm. and what we've really seen is a run-up in um, from the 70s to about 2000 a run-up in the scope of incarceration that affected both people with disabilities and without and um, I myself don't think that the, the the decline in big institutions has contributed very much to that that mm-hmm. said there's no question that if appropriate community services were being provided to people with mental disabilities in the community, that many of them would be able to stay out of jail and prison.
0: I'm speaking to Professor Margot Schlinger from the University of Michigan. The other interesting piece around this is just thinking through uh, the ADA, which is now celebrating 30 years, and it's a big milestone. Uh, and we know despite that that people with disabilities continue to face a lot of discrimination lots of barriers and outside of prison how do people with disabilities fare inside prison what are some of the big issues that you've seen
1: well um there's a lot of different issues for people with disabilities in prison and they vary a great deal across the kind of disability and across different different prisons so if you think about some big buckets of um of issues, people with uh, mobility impairments um, have a very difficult time in prisons because they there are just physical obstacles to their participation mm-hmm. in prison life, and there's all the things that people can do in their self-controlled life to self-accommodate mm-hmm. those things are not available in prison so for example um you know when you're not in prison nobody makes you sleep at the top in a top bunk but when Mm -hmm. you are in prison people do that sounds very simple and i don't mean that people who are quadriplegic are being forced to sleep in top bunks that's not quite what i'm saying but people who have more more um less significant mobility impairments often are and that can be very very problematic for them or mm-hmm. again if if you're outside of prison and you have difficulty walking you organize your own life around your difficulty walking but in prison you don't get to organize your own life and so those obstacles can be very very major so that's mobility impairment and and prisons are not very accommodating mm-hmm. then if suppose you think about Uh, uh, hearing impairments Um, Mm -hmm. so if you're talking about hearing impairments prisons are terrible environments for people with hearing difficulties Um, they're very noisy they're very the ambient noise level is very high and so for people with hearing impairments even those who aren't all the way to you know deaf and who use sign language to communicate um, they're just extraordinarily alienating, difficult environments. And again, mm-hmm. the things that you do in, in a self-controlled life to accommodate yourself are not available to you in prison. You just mm-hmm. don't have that degree of control. I recall watching a, um, a, a drug treatment program that was a requirement for parole in a, in a prison, and I remember watching, watching it once. It was conducted right next to an ice machine, And the result Mm -hmm. of it being right next to the ice machine was that it was really hard to hear. And so the people in that class who had hearing impairments basically couldn't hear it. Um, And yet they had to take that class in order to be eligible for parole. And so they sat there in what was effectively an environment where they weren't getting anything from the program, but they sat through it um, and then had to answer questions that they had no insight into because they Mm -hmm. hadn't heard the class. So right. so for pe- for people with hearing impairments Prisons are isolating and alienating And, and really, really difficult environments And then mm-hmm. the really big one For people with um, mental illness And that's an enormous proportion of the people in prison For people with mental illness Prisons are um, very, very difficult places They might have trouble um, with uh, rigid rules and different kinds of required impulse control um, and there's very little accommodating them and so you'll sometimes see people with mental illness who violate some dumb prison rule you know a very trivial prison rule they get in trouble for it they end up in right. isolation they decompensate in isolation and they start violating more and more and more rules and the Um, Petty rules, mostly, occasionally much more serious ones. And those those violations can just accumulate so that you can end up with people who, um, you know, for destruction of property or smearing feces on the walls or whatever, end up in isolation for a year or two years or 10 years.
0: That's really shocking. You know, one of the things that I know from my experience, being a person with a disability and having to ask for accommodations all my life, is this principle of individualizing the accommodation. So, you know, what works for me wouldn't necessarily work for you. Uh, are prisons able to handle that degree of, of minutiae? Are they able to work with individual prisoners? Or does all disability accommodations uh, just sort of get lumped in together?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think that um, both the nature of disability and the jurisprudence of disability laws requires the kind of individualization that you're talking about prisons are um anti-individualizing spaces they don't um the people who run prisons don't like to individualize and they don't like it for a set of good and not so good reasons you know they're running a mass institution and individualization is um complicated and it runs the risk of um defeating horizontal equity, you know, equity between people. And mm-hmm. those those are um, those are real things. On the other hand, individualization is required for fair treatment of people with disabilities. And so um, I think that prisons could do this, and I think they should, and I think that some of them have, but it's a very, very major challenge.
0: My name is Joita Gupta, and my guest today is University of Michigan professor Margot Schlinger. Margot, one of the things that we were talking about just a few minutes ago was the need to implement suitable accommodations and the role of the ADA in the prison system. So accommodating people with disabilities, to put it very simply, is a matter of the law. How do people with disabilities enforce those rights while they're in prison?
1: So one of the requirements of the ADA is that institutions, um, uh, governmental institutions, have an ADA coordinator and prisons have not always been great about implementing that, but that's getting to be more common. The ADA coordinator then becomes a person who can be expert in both what the law requires, but also in the ways that accommodation is possible. So I'll stick with um, with hearing, for example. Um, mm-hmm. It takes some expertise to know that if a person is having difficulty hearing in a prison-mandated class, that they could, um, that what what kinds of assistive listening devices are available and affordable for the prison? And mm-hmm. there's no point in having everybody do that from scratch every time. And so an ADA coordinator can grow to develop the expertise in, okay, what do we do for amplification? So one of the ways that prisoners can um uh, get their rights accommodated, or get get their disabilities accommodated, and vindicate their rights is by asking an ADA coordinator in a system that has empowered the ADA coordinator to uh, do what needs to be done. So mm-hmm. that's that's an out of court method. Um, but in addition, prisoners can they can bring lawsuits, they can make complaints, um, they can make complaints. They many states have. Commissions on people with disabilities of various types that they can complain mm-hmm. to. Um, every state in the United States has a protection and advocacy organization that is uh, committed to uh, protecting the rights of people with disabilities, particularly who are in um, state-run institutions. They can complain to those. All of this is things they can try. Do those mm-hmm. things work all the time? No, they don't work all the time
0: right i want to talk a little bit about the use of solitary confinement because that's one of the issues that i think people are very familiar with um and yet you know you mentioned the constitution earlier in our conversation and the sections about cruel and unusual punishment isn't there something in the constitution that would prevent people with severe mental health concerns from being put in solitary confinement
1: well many courts have said so yes um so um, there's a, a famous case, Madrid versus Gomez, by one of our great judges, Felton Henderson, which, where Judge Henderson wrote in 1995 that putting a person with mental illness into solitary confinement was like putting an asthmatic into a room with insufficient oxygen, where mm. a person who didn't have asthma might be able to manage it for a while, a person with solitary confinement, it's it the the, the degree of harm is much more grievous, and therefore it's unconstitutional. So, um, so, and I think that's correct. It's not absolutely settled law in the United States, but I think it is a correct interpretation of the Constitution, and a, a number of cases have said that. That mm-hmm. said, one of the things that happens when either a court or a legislature announces a rule, hey, no, nobody with, with serious mental illness can go into solitary confinement, is what um, prisoners advocates called miraculous cures of schizophrenia. So a person who Mm. has been diagnosed with schizophrenia for a good chunk of their life will all of a sudden be re-diagnosed with a personality disorder instead, Mm. um, which doesn't count as serious mental illness, and now they'll be allowed in solitary confinement because they don't have schizophrenia anymore. So, um, So those rules are sometimes announced but not really implemented, but yes, I think that is what the Constitution requires.
0: You know, again, going back to my own experience, bear in mind, I've never been in prison. But um, as I said, I have a lot of experience with the accommodation process. And one of the end goals is to try and ensure that the person with a disability is uh, as integrated as possible, whether it's in schools or the employment setting. Does that principle also hold true true in prisons? I mean, do you not have policies or or practices that might inadvertently create a distance between the disabled and the non-disabled prisoners? Are there ways to get around that?
1: Yeah, so the, um, the integration principle um, is considered a piece of, of disability law in the United States. Um, uh, and the major case about it, um, Olmst- L.C. versus Olmstead, maybe it was Olmstead versus L.C., excuse me, um, was a, a, a great opinion by Justice Ginsburg um, mm-hmm. Back in the 90s, and it said that isolating people with disabilities so that if they're going to receive services, they have to receive them in settings that are distanced from the community of the non-disabled, that that constitutes discrimination. So, mm-hmm. so yes, that's absolutely a principle. And so, in prison, for example, if a prison system sets it up so that everybody with a mobility impairment um, has to be in high-security housing because that's their only unit that is wheelchair-accessible. That violates the ADA.
0: hmm You know, the other thing I was thinking about, again, in terms of my own experience uh, with asking for accommodations, is the fact that I'm often consulted about what those accommodations are. And I'm wondering to what extent a prisoner with a disability uh, is consulted about the accommodations that are put in place. Because you noted earlier that prisons are not meant to provide individualized solutions. And yet this is all about tailoring an accommodation to an individual's needs.
1: Right. So... Uh, In U.S. law, the the requirement of an interactive process between the person who needs the accommodation and the institution from which they need it, that explicit legal requirement doesn't apply to Title II, which is the piece of the ADA that governs not just prisons but lots of other governmental institutions. So Mm -hmm. there's no formal requirement of an interactive process. That said, there is a requirement that when somebody needs an accommodation that primary consideration be given to the the accommodation they request as opposed to some other way of handling their issue and so that works out to a similar spot that it's it's there is a legal requirement that that the individual have a lot to say about what kind of accommodation they get but Mm -hmm. prisons aren't so great at doing that that um that prisoners are gaming the system that they are not being frank about what it is they need and are trying to do things for illicit reasons. And so, um, and you know, that's sometimes true, um, as it is in other in non-prison settings too. And so they tend to not care so much what the prisoners say their needs are. Mm-hmm. So this is one of the obstacles to, um, to exercise of rights of disability rights in prison.
0: Right. One of the things that you've written about is the need to develop policies and approaches for um, intake, assessment, and also just discharge of prisoners with disabilities, because I, I would imagine that any of those transitions would be particularly difficult for a prisoner with any kind of a disability. What are you recommending?
1: Think, yeah, so I think that it's very important that that jails and prisons do something affirmative to find out Who has disabilities and to explain to them what is um, on offer because otherwise um, you end up with a lot of needless suffering so a prisoner who I'll just again stick with can't hear a prisoner who can't hear something doesn't know that if he says hey you know what I can't hear that that there's an ADA coordinator um, a set of amplification options and so on He's got no way to know that. This is a, an institution that he comes to where um, where uh, uh, making making a fuss is really discouraged. And mm-hmm. so and it's not like he has access to the Internet to go say, hmm, I'm having a problem, I wonder what I could do about it. He doesn't have access to the Internet. So mm-hmm. I think it's really important that jails and prisons uh, – affirmatively identify people with disabilities and then affirmatively explain to them what um, the available processes are and what some of the available accommodations are and then engage in a um an interactive uh back and forth where they figure out how to get the prisoner what he needs in order to enjoy equal access to the program services and activities of that prison which is what the law requires
0: I guess this is a, you know, it's, it's simplifying a, a broader discussion. But in the interest of time, I, I must ask you, when we think about prisoners with disabilities in particular, uh, you mentioned a lack of access to the Internet. How do prisoners with disabilities access um, legal education and legal information? It's a very basic question. But if you don't know what your rights are, how do you go about enforcing them?
1: Right. I think this applies not only to prisoners with disabilities, but to all prisoners. The question is, how is it? Whatever whatever the L, the applicable rights are, how do prisoners know what their rights are? So, um, um, most prisons have law libraries, and so for people who can read and who have sufficient sophistication to read complex texts and understand them and process them and do research, they can go to the law library and look things up. Um, but honestly, it's, um, it's, it's very hard to know what your rights are. As, mm-hmm. as far as criminal law, we have a requirement that um, people facing felony charges, which is you know pretty much everybody in prison, although not everyone in jail, that they have had a lawyer. And so they've had somebody to talk to about that. And that may or may not have actually worked well in practice, but at least there's someone they can ask. Mm-hmm. For civil rights, we don't have any such systems. And so there's no question that there are lots of people in prison who don't know what their rights are.
0: And the big, I guess the question that comes from that is, how do we keep it from being that people with disabilities end up warehoused in prisons? I mean, that we must, I think, end this conversation by talking a little bit about practices and policies that need to be put in place to divert people away from the carceral system. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I'm, I'm of course, a big believer in... Um, In decreasing incarceration both for people with disabilities and for people not with disabilities I think we overuse our prisons in a really grievous way Um, and so I think that's really important I think for people whose crimes are at their base uh, related to mental illness there is a, a movement to have mental health courts that can try to do some diversion my own view is that mental health courts are not really the way to go but rather non-carceral responses to the conflicts that that send people to prison. So that rather than sending a cop to um, a person who's having a psychotic episode, what the person who should go in and manage that crisis is somebody trained in social work. That carceral responses are the wrong responses, not to every incident, but to many, many, many of the incidents that involve mental illness.
0: Margot Schlinger, it has been such a pleasure to speak to you today. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: That was University of Michigan professor Margot Schlinger. If you've missed any of our conversation, you can find the podcast on your favorite podcast platforms. We are almost out of time. This is a complicated discussion that warrants further thought and contemplation. But suffice it to say, we need to really think about those non-carceral solutions. think about the implications of overusing our prison system. Please head on over to AMI.ca forward slash on the Pulse. I will probably sit with this interview for a while and have a couple of other reflections for you on the blog. I'd like to thank Margot Schlinger for being on the program today. The technical producer for the Pulse is Nisreen Abdel-Majid. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio and Paula Janine is our technical supervisor. Most of all, thank you very much for listening. We would love to get your feedback. You can write us on Twitter at AMI-audio and use the hashtag pulse. AMI. Thanks a lot for listening and have a wonderful rest of your day.
1: This was an AMI podcast.
0: For more accessible media,